Also available on the Frank Horror Channel, Frank Horror Presents Sinner's Moon, a seven-episode limited horror fiction series. Suitable for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Horror Analysis, a podcast that takes a psychological deep dive into all things horror and macabre. Here are your hosts, Frank Horror, writer, director, filmmaker, and podcaster with a background in counseling psychology, and Dr. Elliot Rotman, a clinical psychologist with a background in acting and the arts. So cosmic horror really is characterized by this otherworldly threat, be it alien or interdimensional. It started off as pulp fiction. It was like fantastic tales back in the day, that sort of thing. And so there's a blending a little bit of sci-fi and horror, but it is really looking at man's place in the universe. And it's not a good one. So the picture is that we are insignificant in the scope of a universe that is at best indifferent and at worst hostile to us. And Lovecraft used a lot of uh, elder gods that fell to earth and maybe imprisoned and, and they've got cults of non-human entities that are one day hope to free them and uh, Cthulhu being one of them. And so it's a very bleak, nihilistic, almost a, you know, we're on the verge of a doomsday kind of a view, but it's a threat that's alien. So would this be similar in any way to uh, Greek mythology or Roman mythology, that there are gods there that determine our lives? To an extent. Um, I mean, there is a, a pantheon. Okay. But unlike the gods of our mythology, you know, these are arguably gods that and goddesses that we've created. We've projected aspects of ourselves onto them. The interesting thing about Lovecraft's gods or, or gods in cosmic horror are they, these supremely powerful alien entities that are so different in nature from ourselves that their motives we don't even understand. And that's a characteristic, too, is that, you know, as we push forward with scientific discoveries, which, you know, around early 19th century, science was really gaining some ground in terms of understanding the universe and our place in it. Um whether it's through scientific understanding or whether it's through reading ancient tomes of forbidden knowledge, uh, the idea is that reality that we've created is our own little sandbox that we're playing in. And we're all content and happy in the sandbox. But if we were to ever step outside of the sandbox and, you know, use science or use arcane texts and knowledge to see the universe for what it was, we would be driven insane. Like there are things that man was not meant to know. And that's how nihilistic that this sort of genre is in terms of our place in the cosmos. So nihilism is a key component of it. Absolutely. There's a kind of hopelessness and it's, <clears throat> we can't be, begin to understand these other creatures, motives, way of thinking, but they're not benevolent. Exactly. And we can't even uh, stop them. The best we can hope for is to discover their presence and just reaffirm that we were right in our dread. But it's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. 
So some good examples of the genre would be basically anything written by H.P. Lovecraft or his successors in terms of the Lovecraft mythos cycle. Uh, in terms of movies, there was In the Mouth of Madness, uh, Event Horizon, John Carpenter's The Thing, and I would say Stephen King, The Mist. So these are all either interdimensional or alien threats that we don't understand and that we're, you know, we're, we're dealing with maybe the periphery of it, but that's all we can handle because they're bigger than us. You know, in the, uh, in the thing, which is one of my guilty pleasures, John Carpenter's the thing. I don't know. I've seen it. I don't ha- know how many times the, you know, like in the, in the shining where we talked about this previously, the Arctic creates the same sense same sensibility as the mansion in the rockies in that it's cold it's snowing it's dark and it also has an element there of yes an alien ship has landed but there's also a virus that there's something within it that's infecting people and causing them to change so you're also left with the sense that there is something from beyond our known world but it combines, it's, it's actually a combination of things as I think about it, in that there is the sense of we can't see the enemy. We don't know who, the sense of dread, who is infected or not until they really begin to change. So there's also that sense of like, what are we doing here? What's our place here in this world that is dark and cold and threatening, and you don't know who your enemy is? And there's also that sense of body horror because people were just, you know, their, your whole head would open. and Yeah, and also, unlike dealing with just a, a random virus that had effect, you're dealing with a, an intelligent organism yes. at a cellular level. So there was a malevolence to it and an intelligence to it, and that's indicative of cosmic horror as well. Mm-hmm. So it kind of hits at a lot of levels. It does. Um, it makes me think of, in terms of the bleakness of it and – once you realize we're basically insignificant, it makes me think of existentialism. Yes. And that man's place in the universe is really insignificant. And so we're left to kind of figure what is the meaning in life? And it's not necessarily an existentialism, unlike cosmic horror. It's not necessarily uh, nihilistic in nature, even though it sounds it. We have to find our own meaning. We have to instill meaning and purpose for ourselves. But that film in particular ends up on just this really, as you used the word, bleak note. It's like, it's not going to end well. It's just about who, if anyone, is going to survive. Mm -hmm. But you're just left to be constantly vigilant against you're not sure what. And that's really a key part of it. That tends to be with Cosmic Horror. I think the, the endings, if there is a victory, it's a small one and it's a temporary one at best against the bigger threat. What are some of the other films you mentioned? Could you talk about like their endings and how that plays in? Yeah. In the mouth of madness, that was, if not directly inspired by Lovecraft, it was, um, it was definitely influenced. It was about this town that was trying to bring about uh, these elder gods, these powerful interdimensional beings into our world to open that gate and bring them forth. And that's a common theme in a lot of horror movies nowadays. I think, uh, cosmic horror back in its day in the 1900s was a building block for a lot of the tropes that we see like the Necronomicon. I'm kind of jumping off topic a bit, but right. the Necronomicon was a, a tome that was used in love by Lovecraft. Right. 
And you see that now in Evil Dead or, or mm -hmm. different movies that kind of feature this forbidden book of knowledge. And if you read of it or their incantations, you're going to bring about terrible consequences. So The Mist, speaking of bleak endings, there's, mm -hmm. there's a film that had a controversial ending. Do you, have you seen The Mist? I have, but I can't recall enough of it. So do go on. Oh, I don't want to spoil it, but um, there. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah. There were. So there was an invasion of these, you know, interdimensional creatures. Some Somehow a door opened up and um, they came spilling out into our world along with this mist. And the humans ended up dealing with what equated to insects in their world. There were much larger creatures on a greater scale. But just the, the small thing is, as insects now have become major menaces and predators that are hunting us in, in the mist. So it's a nihilistic sort of take on, you know, the, the mm -hmm. threat from another world. Right. Uh, a nihilistic take on humanity because I don't know if you remember, but there were, they were trapped in a supermarket and factions started to form in the supermarket and trying to find religious reasons and scapegoat and blame for who's, who's responsible for this. And so it was a reflection of, humanity at its worst. But then even at the very end, the studio went with an ending where just out of mercy, this guy ends up shooting everyone in the car, including his own son, turns the gun on himself. And at that point he's out of bullets. And so he's just committed the unspeakable to, to try and, you know, save everyone from further misery. And then after he does so, the government comes rolling in and they're you know, help comes. And, and so had they come a few moments earlier, he would have not just killed his son and everyone else in the car. So that's a rough ending, and a lot of people didn't swallow that pretty well. I'm sitting here now, and I'm not swallowing that. <laughs> but that is bleak and nihilistic, and it's, again, going back to a door opens from another dimension, another – it's just there and leaves us as humanity vulnerable. I think it takes – it's disconcerting for some because it takes the focus off of us in terms of having primacy. I think if you look back to olden times when – we used to think that the sun and the moon and all the celestial bodies would just pop up and, and appear and, and or rotate around us. Even, you know, Galileo in, in medieval times was jailed for realizing and calling the fact that, hey, things aren't revolving around the earth. We're part of something that revolves around the sun and there's a lot more. And so as science expanded and we started to realize just how vast this universe is and our, our insignificant role in it in terms of not just scope, but in terms of time, how long time has been. We're just a blink of an eye. And um, it's a lot to to kind of absorb. And I think that cosmic horror sort of captures that anxiety of we're not in charge of the universe. We're not bosses here. And the notion of we're not in charge, we're not bosses. And that in a part of the the horror notion is that lack of control. That as, you know, we think we're the most highly evolved creatures and it's like, no, no, that's not the case. And that's what's so disconcerting about it. Agreed. Just the concept of it. And the more we discover through science, the more that even puts it, us at peril is the premise. As great as our scientific accomplishments are, it just reveals how screwed we really are in the, mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of things. So I'd read some critiques on Lovecraft and that this was his worldview and the theory goes that Lovecraft wrote in order to kind of cope with this nihilistic, bleak worldview that he had, that we're just insignificant flecks. And so it was kind of a catharsis to come to grips with. Hmm. 
So I'd mentioned that um, there were other authors that sort of spun off of the works of H.P. Lovecraft. And just to name a few uh, notable ones, we have August Derelith, Robert Block, uh, Clark Ashton Smith, Ramsey Campbell, Frank Bellencamp Long, Brian Lumley, and Kim Newman. There's been a lot more, though. And so you will, to this day, find these anthologies that come out with you know, new takes on these old themes, new stories, new horrors. And they typically have a very um, cephalopod, uh, like a represent, like, well, a re- representation. They look like cephalopods. They look like cephalopods, yeah. So you have Cthulhu whose face is like an octopus. Tentacles are big in this. Like these things are so inhuman that they have like a multitude of eyes or tentacles or they're, you know, quivering masses, kind of like the blob, actually. Right. It's something we can't relate to in any way. And if you think about cephalopods, whether it's squid, octopi, or anything like that, is they look as much unlike us as possible of all creatures. So Lovecraft picked up on that and made it seem, because the the notion of a giant squid ruling over you or determining your future, that's pretty terrifying. It's hard to know how to relate. As opposed to to more traditional Western civilization notions of gods, they sort of look like people. And they just have different personalities, different agendas. But he figured on slimy and there's no skeleton and that creates this sense of dread. Mm-hmm. Something alien, something other that's understand, ununderstandable or incomprehensible, I should say. So if you think about what is a 20,000 leagues under the sea of this notion, this enormous octopus or squid, I forget what it was, uh, attacking, uh, you know, attacking the vessel. The giant squid, yeah. The giant squid. Because we just can't relate to squids. There's nothing there to... We can study them, we can be fascinated by them, but the notion is if it becomes more powerful than we are, that's terrifying. And there's a whole vast section of our world that's unexplored and looking at the deep trenches of the ocean. And again, there's this aquatic theme of Mm -hmm. the squids and beings like Cthulhu who are imprisoned in a sunken city beneath the ocean somewhere. And, you know, the followers, some of them human, some of them not, are trying to wait for the stars are right again to kind of get this God to rise. And when the old ones come back, that means doom for us, for our society. That's the assumption. And that's where it's not just like, oh, they'll be different. They'll be neighbors. They will determine our lives though. And that's the, that's the horror part that we will not have control. And there's no way to negotiate, to relate because they have an existence, a way of being that we have no way to fathom. Right, right. And I think it's really interesting to look at the different gods and goddesses throughout history, that they are all essentially projections of us or projections of aspects of us. So they're distinctly human in many ways. They look human. And then even the ones from, let's say, ancient Egypt who have the heads of snakes or falcons or or what have you, they still hold humanoid form. Like they, they have these animal heads on top of a human form. But most importantly, all these gods throughout our history uh, that we have, have created have human motivations. They have human emotions. The gods of cosmic horror, by contrast, are not human in any way. 
They're distinctly alien and their motives are incomprehensible to us. So I guess the big takeaway from our discussion on cosmic horror and these ancient tentacled gods is basically, you know, think about that the next time you order some calamari. Now, we're going to pivot away from our discussion on our squid overlords, and we're going to talk about a relatively newer subgenre to the world of horror, and that is the subgenre of found footage. Found footage films, a fairly new phenomenon. So let's look at this, because this was, what was it, Blair Witch Project was credited as the first. There was one, I believe, before that that wasn't quite as... It wasn't quite as a commercial success. I think it was about the Jersey Devil, and I don't recall the name of it. But then along comes the Blair Witch Project, which at its time was a revolutionary film. I don't know about you, but I, I remember watching this in the theater. And at that point, now found footage, you know, it's a subgenre of itself. So now everybody right. talks about it and it, we're used to it. But at that time, there was a lot of questions about what was this? Was this real? Was this actually a movie? Or are we watching like footage of people who actually disappeared? And I remember coming out of the theater, uh, A, seasick from all the motion of the camera, uh, but B, talking with my friends and debating as to whether this was actually fiction or this was real footage. But it was people in a, se- in a setting of uh, true dread. We don't see the predators or what is going after them. And there was a lot of focus on faces, mm-hmm. which made it that much more powerful. And it's, it's not clear to, especially when, given that was the first, like who's, who's doing the filming of this? How is this happening? But they were able to create the impression that this had actually happened. Mm-hmm. And that's the power of it. So you have that, we've talked before about you know, having empathy towards a procra- uh, protagonist. To the good guy in charge, uh, protagonist. Uh, or sometimes even towards the antagonist, the the villain. But here it was, are we watching something that happened to real people? And that's terrifying. It is. To think that we're being voyeurs. That's found footage implies voyeurism. Yes, you're right. And that, as the filmmaker intended, it breaks down that barrier of psychologically, as an audience member, I'm going to sit down in this theater. I'm going to watch this. And I know that this was a film crafted mm-hmm. for my viewing pleasure. You sit down and that psychological barrier, that safety barrier is removed because you don't know if what you're watching exactly. There, there used to be a, um, a trope that uh, would be tell yourself, it's remind yourself it's only a movie. It's only a movie. And with found footage, it was harder to do that because you're asking, was it only a movie? What was this really? What did we actually see? And I think it's it's since gotten so commercialized that you know that it, it it's I think a lot of the subsequent ones look like they've been actively scripted regardless of how they're they're filmed. But that one had power because you weren't sure what you were seeing. Exactly, that, that's what was unsettling. And now you're right. Now people expect found footage to be this is a movie. They recognize that now it's a technique for filming. But it's one that, again, if it's done well, it can be uh, pretty effective. What it was initially was handheld camera. And this is supposedly something bad has happened to the people involved. There are no survivors. And this is the last testament to whatever happened to them. Um, And there have been some different takes on that. Now, it could be a mockumentary. 
so it's made to look like a documentary, but it's entirely fake. Uh, I believe it was the the taking of Deborah Logan. Yes, where it's a documentary crew. This is uh, they go to to document this woman with Alzheimer's, and it turns out it's something more insidious than Alzheimer's. That was a terrifying movie, but you're seeing it from first person perspective. Cloverfield is another one. Found footage of this actually cosmic horror coming down and attacking the city. Um, or it could be surveillance or video footage like um, paranormal activity. So a lot of it for found footage, I think, depends. Its effectiveness depends on the technique. So um, the first one we were talking about, um, Blair Witch, had its power in that it looked so low tech. And it was a handheld camera. And just watching that, just the, the visual effect on us of, you know, when you're watching a, an image that's shaking, going back and forth, it seems much more credible, much more real. And without that barrier of separation of this being a polished movie, uh, it's like a first person shooter video game. Right. You're in it. There's a sense of immediacy of being in that kind of a, a, an experience. I think some of the found footage things done afterwards, including uh, Deborah Logan, it, at least for me, it raised the question of like, where did this camera person come from and how did they have this perspective? It seemed a little too slick and it lost its effectiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like, you know, watching you know, an episode of The Office. Uh, you know, they're supposed to be filmed and people look at the camera, but you know, this is just all plotted, it's scripted. So I think the the power of found footage is to accept the premise in the beginning that this could be real. And anything else afterwards, I, I, I don't know, to my view, isn't particularly scary because you, it's like, oh, it's a technique. Yeah, although I will say that um, the security camera footage uh, of something like Paranormal Activity, even though we True. know that that, it, and there's been several of those movies, and we know that that's a movie, it's fiction going in, but it touches on that sense of, you know, if you're a homeowner and you look at your security camera, your ring doorbell, and you realize my privacy was invaded. Somebody was here. Somebody did something. And that, that feeling of I was helpless and I didn't even know I was asleep and someone was in the house. And that sense of being violated. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's where the power comes from. It's and that, and those, it's a notion of being violated. So even if you look at those and you say, yeah, okay, it's a, there's a theme here. But if you create something that someone else can relate to, I mean, that touches the emotions. And one of the emotions is fear. And that creates that creates the power. And this is, while it's a relatively new technique in terms of cinema, if you go back to literature, I would argue it's kind of a, a variation of first-person perspective. Mm-hmm. You're reading someone's journal. This is the last journal of the shipwrecked person that, you know, it's not going to end well, but you're experiencing their you're going through their experiences through their perspective absolutely the power when it's in literature though is that you don't have to verify it visually you don't have to look at it and go oh is this real they're telling us this is their last will and testament this is their journal and you are in the moment there Mm -hmm. so it's not found footage it's found literature but it becomes a kind of a legacy. I, I think it's easier to accept when it's done like that. The other becomes a matter of technique. But it all comes down to how much we identify with it. You know, could this happen to me? And that's it, ladies and gentlemen. That is our show. 
So uh, we end our discussion on cosmic horror and found footage films. And we have just one show left in our first season here at the Horror Analysis. Our final topic for our next show is blended genres. Uh, I think that's going to be an interesting one. So where we look at the blending of horror with other genres. So make sure to come back for that. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. The Horror Analysis is a Frank Horror production and is brought to you by Frank Juknowitz, Elliot Rotman, and William Rizzo. Audio engineering and the original theme music to The Horror Analysis were provided by William Rizzo. Audio editing provided by Frank Juknowitz. Sound mastering was provided by David Parsons. The opening credits introduction was voiced by Christine Matshai. To learn more about our show, visit us online at frankhorror.com.